We are working through the book of John. We are on the second half of John 16. Uh, hopefully you guys were here or went online and caught the first half of John 16, because we're going to pick up right where we left off. Feel free to get your notes out, open your Bibles to John chapter 16, any of that stuff that will help you. And I'm going to jump right in. Now, there is one quick thing I want to review just so, because uh, we're going to continue this theme as we get into John 16, and that's this. Um, what we were learning in the first part of John 16, or the first half, was Jesus was trying to give us a perspective, and he was talking a lot about suffering. I was talking to someone recently. I said, I feel like uh, going through John 14, 15, 16, I'm talking a lot about being to him in the love of God and the fruit of the Spirit, but I'm also talking a lot about tribulation and persecution, um, and, I, and I don't want to emphasize that, uh, except uh, Jesus keeps bringing it up. So uh, I'm going to try and not talk about it anymore, and he does, uh, but he does. And so the perspective that we were getting out of the first part of John 16 uh, was the call to the first commandment, to not stumble in love in the midst of hatred and persecution, that the world's going to hate us, the world's going to persecute us. And in the midst of that, in that environment, we were to not stumble specifically in love, in being a, a people who love, right? Which is challenging. How many of you find that challenging? Sometimes you don't even have to leave your house to find that challenging, right? So uh, we're all in this together. So let's start reading. We're uh, picking up with verse 16. I want to read 16 through 19. And uh, he says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you'll see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's saying. Now, Jesus knew that they, de that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said uh, a little while and you will see me and again a little while and you will not see me? Or I'm sorry, backwards, a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me. All right, at any rate, it seems like it took a long time to say the same thing three times, <laughs> right? So uh, the reason is understand uh, they don't know what's going to really happen. Now, we look at that, and we know exactly what that's talking about. It's talking about the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. From the cross, he's going to the grave where they will not see him. And not only will they not see him, but because they haven't really grasped what's going on, we, in retrospect, grasp what Jesus is doing at the cross. They didn't fully at that point. And so, for them, it's going to be a time of great sorrow and distress. They're not going to see him. And as far as they know, he was crucified. And, of course, there's going to be the resurrection. They're going to see him again. In fact, there's going to be a 40-day period where he, where he appears to them several times. And then there's going to be the ascension, uh, as he talks about, because I go to the Father, where he's going to return to the Father, uh, seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, the worthy one, the only one able to open the seals, because he purchased mankind with his blood. Amen? So we know all that now. They didn't know that, so, uh, so they're confused. But we're not, right? 
So I don't need to really explain that further. We just blew through three verses that said the same thing really fast. Um, that's what's going on. What I do want you to get from that is this is going to be deeply sorrowful and distressing to them. You understand that? Because uh, they don't, Jesus, for the joy set before him, is going to endure the cross. They don't fully get the joy set before them yet. I mean, he's been talking to them about it, but uh, it's clear, and it will be clear, uh, they don't totally get it yet, but they will get it, all right? And so he begins to talk about that in verse 20, and, and uh, there's a couple, there's really two verses I'm going to lean into pretty hard, and this is one of them. In verse 20, then, he says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So Jesus, knowing what's coming, says, basically, guys, it's going to be really bad. You're going to be really sad. You're not going to understand what's going on. This is going to be sorrowful, but I'm promising you it's going to turn to joy. And it's going to be uh, significant joy. All right, and so uh, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, what I want us to see is I think there are some times where something happens in the Bible and, it, and it's highlighting a principle because we see it in other places. And I'm not going to go to all the other places we see this principle, but it is a principle. And the principle is this, in him, and underline in him, that's the caveat, this promise is only if we're in him. But in him, sorrow always ends in joy. That is a principle that you can take to the bank. If we're in him, whatever we go through, whether sometimes it does in this life, for sure it does in the next where he will wipe away every tear, right? But sorrow always ends in joy. This is what Jesus was talking about in Hebrews 12 too, when he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross right? And so uh, it's better uh, if we can understand this perspective while we're going through our cross, while we're taking up our cross daily and following him, it's better if we can understand that it will be turned to joy at some point, that it sets a joy before us that enables us to endure. You understand that? And so he's trying to encourage them. He's going, guys, I know it's going to be hard, but there's going to be joy at the end of it, Right? Now, there's something slipped in here that's easy to miss. He says, a little while, I'm sorry, where am I at? Verse 20. He says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, we don't really see that laid out for us. We don't see like a lot of crucifixion parties covered in the New Testament. Uh, but, it, but he says the world will rejoice. And I don't know if you know, the Pharisees were going back and just, you know, having an open bar and going, this is awesome. We got rid of that guy. He was screwing everything up. We're back in charge. Everybody's doing what we say. He's going to quit healing people and making us look stupid. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of parties they had, but there was rejoicing. Yeah. Now, here's what I want you to see. And it's important, I think, that we see this. There's an enduring principle being revealed here as well. What I mean by an enduring principle is it's a principle that is, we see in the Old Testament, and it's a principle we will continue to see until Jesus comes again and stands on the earth and rules and sets things right. And the principle is this, 
the world will always have an extreme opposite reaction to God. Always. And we need to understand this. Part of what's going on in these chapters is he's trying to get us to understand this. That's why there's so much talk about tribulation and persecution. Because the world will always have an opposite reaction. While they're mourning, it's not like they're mourning and the rest of the world's going, ah, well, okay, it's too bad. I know you feel bad, but no, they're rejoicing. And when we're rejoicing, they're mourning because they're not getting their way. You understand this is going on. I want to show you this in the Old Testament because it's, 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 it's a concept uh, that we have to get to understand what's going on around us today and to walk through it with the right heart and the right attitude, with the right perspective. Jesus is trying to give us a perspective that will help us to walk through what we have to walk through with the fruit of the Spirit. So to do that, we're going to go to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I think there are a reason these are the first two Psalms, and I think there's a reason. I think they're hooked together, and I'll show you how. And, and I, part of this, this uh, one word here, I stole this idea from Stuart, so you have to give Stuart credit once. And now I'm done. Now it's mine. Um, but uh, you should go online and listen to Stuart Greaves' teachings wherever you can. Steal good stuff from it. All right, so Psalm 1, most of you are familiar with Psalm 1, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the godly, etc. It's talking about being blessed, how we're blessed. And it says in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So, uh, the word there in the Hebrew, and I pointed out for a reason you'll see in a minute, Hagah, just that is translated meditate, just means to, to think about, to turn over. It literally means to mumble, uh, to have this conversation. Now, what we need to realize is we meditate all the time in our head. We have conversations in our head all the time, don't we? And we invite uh, we, we have other people, and they play their part in the conversation, and then we respond to what they say, and it all goes on in our head, right? I mean, maybe you're doing this right now. What's he mean I have conversations in my head? I don't have conversations in my head, right? This is meditating, turning it over, thinking about it, running through scenarios. And what God is saying in Psalm 1 is if we will meditate, if we will work into that inner dialogue, His Word, His ways, His truth, uh, it will affect our life and it will lead to blessing. I love uh, one of the blessings that says in Psalm 1 is everything He puts His hands to will prosper. That's pretty good, right? So that is an incentive to meditate on His Word. Now here's the interesting thing. Psalm 2, which I think is, is so contemporary to what we're seeing in the world today. Be, well, and really, it's just it's what we're seeing in the world always, just varying degrees. So Psalm 2, I want to look at the first three verses. Uh, he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot, Hagah, meditate? It's the exact same word. The people plot a vain thing. So the world... And what I want you to see here is uh, he brings up the world, and, and it's going to happen two or three more times in this passage. He's contrasting the world and his kingdom. And, and which one do we live in? Yeah, and the world. So which one do we live in the most? That's the question, right? 
So he's contrasting the world and his kingdom, and he's saying this is how the world meditates. The word plot there is the exact same word for meditate in Psalm 1. We meditate on the law, or we're supposed to. The world meditates on a vain or useless or empty thing, and here it is. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What does the word Messiah mean? Anointed one. Who are they talking about? Jesus. So they take counsel against the Father and against Jesus, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, uh, the law that all the Psalm 1 people are meditating on, we see that as bonds and cords, and we are having none of it. And all of our meditations are on how do we get out from under the law of God? How do we break the influence of the Father and Jesus? How do we stop this from happening? In other words, we meditate on God's law. The world meditates on lawlessness. That's the conversation all the time. Now, there's varying degrees. There's people that are really given to this, just like there's varying degrees in the church on how, on how much we meditate on the law. But, but it's important that we see this. This isn't just a New Testament concept when Satan is referred to as the lawless one. And in, in, we talked last uh, time we spoke, Matthew 24, about how it says the love of many will grow cold because of lawlessness. Uh, in the end times, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. It's just Psalm 2. It's the world going, we can't have God telling us what to do. We can't have uh, law. So we meditate on the law, the world meditates on lawlessness, getting away from the law. i got to get the law off of me. That's what the world's meditating on. That's what they're talking about. That's what those mental conversations are about all the time. So the reason this is important for us to understand, especially in light of all this is Jesus is talking about, about persecution is he's making it clear they hate you because they hate me. It's not really about us. You aren't a big deal. I'm not a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. They hate him. And they will hate you if you point out him, period. Or if you reference his law or his righteousness. You understand. They just went out from under him. They can't have you reminding them. Uh, and uh, you can read the rest of Psalm 2. It ends well. I'll probably talk about that in a minute. But what I want you to understand is this. We look around us, and this is, I think, so apt right now. We look around us, and we see literally irrational and destructive behavior. We see people doing things that if you ask them about it, they could probably, would probably admit, yes, this is irrational, and this is probably going to cause bad things to happen in my life. But we see it not just on an individual level. We see cities making bad decisions that causes destruction in their city. We see our nation making bad decisions that causes bad things to happen in our nation. And it seems irrational. And we want to go, why? I don't understand. Why would they do this? Well, if we can look at it from God's perspective, it makes this behavior make sense. Why does it make sense? Because they don't care if they burn down their life or their city or our nation, as long as they can get out from under the law of God. 
That's all that matters. We'll deal with the rest of it later. But there's a rage in the world to get out from under the law of God. And to the degree, the Bible says in 1 John, the whole world's under the sway of the wicked one. To the degree that the lawless one has sway, they will pursue that end. And so we see stuff that is in the natural irrational. Makes perfect sense if your only goal is to get out from under the law of God. And I don't even care if my city burns around me if we can just get rid of law. If I can just have what I want and nobody telling me what to do. Right? You recognize that little bit of lawlessness that pulls at us. I just want what I want and nobody telling me what to do. By the way, spoiler alert, rest of Psalm 2. Basically, the rest of Psalm 2 says uh, God laughs at their rage. Says, here's the deal. My son's going to reign the earth. You have one of two choices. Submit to him or perish. Any questions? That's the rest of Psalm 2. Which I think just adds to the rage. Unless you're willing to submit to him like we are. You with me? So, we need to understand this because Jesus keeps talking about the world and him and leaving the world and, and having come into the world to be a light in the world and all these things. And we, we, we sometimes give the world a pass. We don't get that uh, there really is a contrast. There really is a hatred, a desire, a single-minded desire for lawlessness, to get out from under the law of God. To not have to have God tell them what to do or hold them accountable for what they do. Right? We understand that. So, uh, this is what he says. Uh, he, he says their sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And then in verses 21 and 22, he compares it to something that, thank God, I've never experienced. But I understand uh, is powerful and we will paint a picture. Uh, that being childbirth. So let's read verse 21 and 22. A woman, when she was in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she had given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Uh, now, therefore, uh, yeah, uh, therefore now you have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one can take from you. So he's comparing this that they're getting ready to go through, so something we all understand. Half of us only understand it theoretically. Some of you understand it viscerally. Uh, I get that. What uh, is amazing is, ladies, you have a baby. Uh, I've, I've only observed this, but it, it, uh, the, what I observed looked terrifying. <laughs> and, and I had to pry my fingers apart uh, after my hand was used. Um, and that's just a little glimpse that I got. Uh, and so I, I look at that and I go, yep, don't want to do that. And yet, 10 minutes later, there's mom holding the baby. She's not talking about how much it hurt. She's talking about how cute the baby is. And a year or two later, she's going, let's do that again. Let's have another baby. <laughs> I'm going, All right. Right? You understand the comparison he's making. 
He says this sorrow turning to joy is being compared to labor of childbirth. And what I want you to see is uh, in verse 22, he says, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. This isn't just joy in the moment. This is eternal joy. Guys, the resurrection is yours forever. You can always rejoice in the resurrection, and in the new life that is in you through Christ Jesus. That is a forever joy into eternity. No one can take that from you. Nothing can take that from you. Eternal life. Rejoice eternally. Pretty awesome, right? So, this is what this is saying. Let's be very clear, because sometimes we get things confused, and uh, we preach even with a good heart, a wrong gospel. It does not say that we won't have sorrow. All right? This, that would be the equivalent of saying, hey, you should have children. Look, I promise it won't hurt at all. Right? That's a good way to get punched. That's not what he's saying. God never said, come to me and I'll fix everything and nothing will hurt. You're guaranteed sorrow in life. It's going to happen. He's saying that the joy will eclipse the sorrow. That also is an enduring principle, a principle that's always true. The joy in him will always eclipse the sorrow. Happens when you have babies, right? Happens when we bear fruit in the Spirit. Now, some of it's this life, some of it's the next life, but this is a principle that we have to hang on to. What Jesus is trying to get us to see here is the joy always eclipses the sorrow. This is what Paul was saying in Romans 8, verse 18, when he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he suffered pretty well, right? That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He goes, I consider that. So I'm going, Paul, what do you do when you're in the Philippian jail and you've been beaten and they got you in stocks and you're laying around and it's midnight? Uh, how do you handle that? He goes, well, I consider. I think about the glory. I think about the glory that I'm storing up in going through this and participating with the sufferings of Christ. And I know it won't even compare with these sufferings. I, I don't even look at my sufferings. I start thinking about the glory. I consider that the glory is coming, uh, that, that my current sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with that. I just kind of focus on that. I, it sounds like the joy set before you, doesn't it? That's what Paul does. And so this is an enduring principle, that our sorrows will be eclipsed by joy. Amen? And so that's what he's telling them because... They're getting ready to go through it. Now, I, I'm gonna, we're going to talk some more about persecution and tribulation because, again, Jesus keeps bringing it up. Not my fault. Um, and you understand why. I want you to understand why the world is going to do this. But uh, remember, he's speaking to guys who uh, all but one of them are going to be martyred. And the one that isn't martyred is because they tried to kill him and they couldn't supernaturally. So uh, probably... Very few, if any of us, are going to suffer like they suffered. Uh, for most of us, it's probably just going to be ridicule, maybe worse. 
Who knows? Some of you are younger. You might live to see some things. I don't know. There are places in the world where they are suffering now like the apostles suffered and uh, even losing their lives. It just depends on where you are as a church. My point is not uh, that we're all going to suffer horrendously. My point is we have to have this attitude so that we handle it right, whether it's profound suffering or whether it's just uh, being ridiculed. We still handle it the same way. And so these principles are still valid. Okay? So, going on, look at verses 23 through 27. Then he talks about, he starts to talk about their relationship with the Father as uh, this is going to be happening. He says, And in that day, uh, the day when they have moved from sorrow to joy, when he's resurrected, when they receive the Holy Spirit, where they start to enter into ministry, all that good stuff. It says, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. They've been asking Jesus. They haven't been asking the Father. And he's saying, uh, you're going to get to ask the Father in my name. Uh, my name is going to give you access to the Father. And then verse 25 through 27 these things I have spoken to you in a figurative language, but, in the, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, i.e. parables and things like that, uh, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. You're not asking me to talk to Dad. You're going to talk to Dad. Right? For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Now, they're, he's describing the new relationship they're going to have with the Father. Remember in John 14, 2, Jesus starts this whole thing out by saying, in my Father's house are many mansions. In my Father are a lot of dwelling places. I'm going to go make a dwelling place for you in the Father, a dwelling place in the Spirit, right? We've been talking a lot about that dwelling place. And these are, there are three distinct benefits that he highlights now in their new relationship with the Father, the relationship we have with the Father. So I want to make sure we understand these. The first one we saw in verses 23 and 24, and then again repeated in 26, direct access and response. We don't have to go through Jesus, we don't have to go through anybody. We can seat ourselves in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, who's on our left side? Dad. He's right there. We turn our head and say, Dad, I need something. And it sounds like the Father is going to be really excited to answer our prayers. Right? So we have direct access and direct response from the Father. And even gives us the motive. He says, uh, whatever you ask the Father, He'll give you. Why? That your joy may be full, just to make you happy. Now, we can take that too far. Uh, God's goal isn't primarily to make you happy. It's primarily to make you holy. But he also likes to make you happy. And what's awesome is when you're asking him for things that will make you holy, then he really wants to make you happy, right? You guys understood all that, okay. So, it's saying uh, the motive in the Father doing this is full joy. We talked about that in John 15 as well. 
Uh, he wants to answer our prayers so to make our joy full. I, I want you to pursue me, pursue a relationship with me. I want you to talk to me, and I want to answer your prayer so that you're so full of joy that people can tell you and I have been hanging out. Amen? So that's one benefit. Uh, the second one, verse 25, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal the Father to you plainly. In other words, uh, we're going to have clear understanding. We can know the Father. Up until then, the Father was a little mysterious. Jesus was a little mysterious. But they've got to walk with Jesus for three years, so they're getting to know him. And he's going, yeah, well, I'm going to make sure you know the Father too. You can know him. You can know the Father. We can know him. Jesus will reveal him plainly to us. And then the third thing, verse 27, I'm going to call this Trinity-level love. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. Because you love Jesus and, and the Father loves Jesus, he's going to love you for loving Jesus. In fact, and this is a spoiler alert, John 17, we're going to read this next chapter, says that in the way the Father loves Jesus... The Father loves us. Yeah. Wow. What do you do with that? How much does the Father love Jesus? Anyone got a good description of that? That's how much he loves you just because you love Jesus. The Father goes, I love Jesus. And you go, I love Jesus. And he goes, you do? I love you just like Jesus for loving him. That's what I mean by we've been invited in to Trinity-level love. They love each other in this crazy, been together in unity for eternity past kind of love. And then all of a sudden, you come along and you love Jesus and they go, yeah, let's come on into this. Come on into this love thing. I love you like I love Jesus, like Jesus loves me, like we love each other. We just have one level of love and it's full on. Amen? So we got to know this. Now, uh, I also want to point out that uh, this is not theoretical love. The, uh, you know, sorry, there we go. This is not theoretical love, like, you know, yes, I know God loves me because he has to and when I go to heaven, he'll let me in because I believe the right things. And No, no, no. This is experiential love. Amen. This is love that expresses itself. This is the father who uh, can't wait. The first opportunity he has when Jesus is baptized says, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And is looking for opportunity to express his love to you as well. This is not theoretical. When I go to heaven, God will love me enough to let me in. This is experiential. I love you. I want you in the beloved kind of love, right? So, knowing this, he's trying to build them up. He's trying to strengthen them because he knows what's coming, right? Just like what he's trying to do with his church today. So then let's look at verse 28 through 31. We're moving along. I think we're going to make it. He says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. You notice the contrast. He keeps contrasting the world and his place in the Father. Two different kingdoms. Kingdom of the kingdoms of this earth. There will come a point, you read this in Revelation, 
where the kingdoms of, the of this earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. But right now, there's two separate things going on, right? Psalm 2. So, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And uh, his disciples said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? You get it now? And they go, yeah. You said it plain. We get it. You came from God. You came into the world. You're leaving the world. You're going back to God. We finally get it. And he goes, awesome. And we'll get into what he says next here. But what I want you to see, and it's just a simple point, is I think what's going on here is uh, he's noting their, oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking of something else. It's not a simple point, it's two points. Um, he's making a clear identity here that he is the Son of God. He is uh, who he says he is, right? I came into this world, I came from the Father. There's no questioning who that is. So he's making a clear statement, and they go, we get it. You're God. You came from the Father. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're going back. We understand. But what I want you to see uh, is that, again, noting the contrast with the world, it gives us a simple choice between two kingdoms, and it's a choice of affection. Um, so he says, I came into the world. I was with the Father, came into the world, leaving the world, going back to the Father. What we're left with is a choice of affection. And there's only two choices. And again, we're back to Psalm 2. Am I going to love the world or am I going to love the Father? And that's our choice. And again, super duper simple. We see this, John expresses this twice uh, that I'm going to look at. Once in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is very clear. Pick one. You want the love of the Father or the love of the world? If you love the Father, the world's going to hate you. If you love the world, uh, the world's going to like you. But you're not going to see the Father. You got it? And he does the same thing in John 3, verse 19. Now, you guys all know John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. That was his whole purpose, right? John 3, 19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The condemnation isn't from God. The condemnation is us. We condemn ourselves when we go, no, thank you. I don't want light. I like darkness. I like the world. I'll take that, please. And God says, that's fine. You understand that comes with condemnation. Yes. I just want out from under your rule, God. Okay. Read the rest of Psalm 2. It's going to end in perishing. It's very simple, right? And so this contrast with the world leaves us with a simple choice. We have to continually be examining our affections. Are our affections for the world or for God? And uh, 
I say a simple choice, but it's not always simple, is it? There are degrees to this. And we have to make this choice often daily uh, regarding our affections and how much our affections will be in the world, how much the world will talk on us versus how much God will talk on us. And I don't have a problem with having things. I have things. I have a house and a car and shoes and, you know, an iPad, stuff like that. Uh, But none of that stuff is allowed to have me or I'm in trouble, right? And when it comes time uh, that it costs me to maintain my affections towards God, I've got to be willing to give up anything and everything. Yeah. He who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to have anything. It means you have to be willing to forsake anything you have to be his disciple, right? And so that's what's going on here. And so he's just setting them up to understand the world they're living in while the kingdom of God is living in them. And the same for us. Now, then in verse 32, he says, it's interesting, he goes, Do you believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So he goes, You finally get it? That's awesome. Here's what's going to happen next. You're all going to run away and leave me. And, of course, Peter goes, no, I won't do that. And he's wrong, right? So what's he doing? Just, like, trying to make them feel bad? (laughs) No, they're going to feel bad. Have you ever kind of walked away from God and felt bad? Yeah. He's going, look, you're all going to leave. I know you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel like you left me alone. But here's the deal. I won't really be alone. The Father will be with me. I'll be fine. I'm going to win. And by the way, this is an example to you in the future when you feel like everyone's left you and you're standing by yourself and feel alone and the world is breathing down your neck. And you can remember, oh yeah, the Father's with me. Jesus said. And so, amen. So I think he's really kind of setting them an example here, giving them hope. And then... uh, we're going to finish with verse 33 because that's, you know, the last verse in this chapter. Uh, but I really want to talk about this because it gets into something interesting, overcoming. We need to talk about that. So he says, these things I have spoken to you, I have told you all this stuff. This is my motive. That in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And we should really understand what this means. Because I like peace, I don't like tribulation, and he sounds like he's guaranteeing both, doesn't he? So I want to understand this. Um, And he is. He's guaranteeing both. He's saying uh, that he's told us all this, he's given us this perspective, this understanding, so that we get that there is supernatural peace in him in the midst of tribulation in the world. So can I be experiencing both? Yes. Here's the wild thing. I can be experiencing tribulation in the world and simultaneously be experiencing peace in Him. That's what John 15 was talking about when he said, abide in me. The question is, how much am I in the world and how much am I in Him? And and that's what we're, we're all in training for this. This is, we're all in being in Him practice right now right? 
And so the little things and the big things, they all matter because we're learning to abide in Him, to rest in His peace and His love and His joy, no matter what comes, so that uh, we can experience that. And uh, then He says, um, be of good cheer. Actually, uh, probably a better translation, and most of your translations may say that's depending on what you're reading, it says, have courage. That's probably the best translation here. Take courage or have courage. I have overcome the world. He says, hey, you're going to have both. You're going to have tribulation. I'm going to give you peace in the midst of it. But have courage because the world is, is already dealt with. I've overcome the world. Now, what he means by overcome the world is not just Jesus overcame the world. Now you have to. Is I've overcome the world and I overcame the world for all you guys as well. You understand? So he's overcome the world for us. Now, here's what that looks like. Because, again, there's, you know, uh, kind of a false gospel that that means nothing bad will happen to you. No, no, no. Remember, he promised tribulation. He told Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer tribulation or persecution. It's going to happen. It's going to be sorrow. Just the joy will eclipse it, right? So... <sighs> We saw this same concept uh, when we were going through John 14, towards the end, verse 27. And I want to look at this again. Um, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So here's the thing that's going on. It's that same concept. There's peace in me, tribulation in the world. Here he's saying, I'm giving you peace, not the way the world gives you peace. The world gives you peace through circumstances. You can have peace with the world. Uh, in other words, you can have circumstances that are peaceful. All you have to do is agree with the world and not make them mad about Jesus, right? So that's the kind of peace the world has to offer. He's saying, I've got peace that's different. It's that supernatural, internal peace. But I want to focus on the second part of that in John 14, 27. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In this verse, in verse 33, he says, but take courage. So what he's doing is he's addressing fear. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, a major tactic of the enemy is fear. We're told in the last days, men's hearts will fail them for fear. This is a major tactic of the enemy, and Jesus is trying to prepare us here by saying, I've given you a perspective that will allow you to rest in me, to have my supernatural peace, and to not be manipulated by fear. And it has to do with this overcoming that we're talking about, right? So we are aware of this enemy tactic of fear. And and so he's calling us to courage in the midst of tribulation, knowing that we overcome, that we win. Who's winning? Anybody winning today? Let's, let's, let's explore this a little. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, what that means is, you smell like Jesus, not all the time. You smell like Jesus as he leads you in triumph. Right? So if, if you know, uh, you're not abiding in him, you're not going to smell like him. 
but as he leads you in triumph. And it says he always leads us in triumph. What I want you to see, and this is important, is that this does not depend on our circumstances. Our triumph is not our circumstances. And we can miss this. This is an important point. Let me show you. In Romans 8, 35 through 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, not past all these things, conquering isn't not experiencing these things. Conquering is in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, more than conquerors just means we're conquerors, but we didn't do anything about it. He did all the conquering. We just to be, get to be more than conquerors. It's like, you know, when uh, the boxer wins the championship and goes home and hands the check to his wife. She's more than a conqueror. <laughs> she got all the benefits, uh, but didn't get punched, right? That's what Jesus did for us. We, we get the check. Now, here's what I want you to see. Victory, conquering, winning is independent of circumstances. He's talking about people who are winning while they're being persecuted, while they're being killed. All right? Uh, don't buy the lie that winning as a Christian is, you know, having all your prayers answered and all that stuff. All right? I remember... Uh, one time I was, my back went out, and I was in a lot of pain, couldn't sleep, all that stuff, and I'm praying, asking God to heal me, right? And God spoke to me real clearly. He says, I just want you to go through this with the right attitude. I went, okay. So I was in pain for about two weeks, but the whole time I'm remembering that, I'm going, I'm just going to try and bear the fruit of the Spirit as I go through this. Now, here's my point. I absolutely believe in healing. I would have loved to have been healed then, sooner than two weeks. Uh, it, keep, keep in faith for healing. But here's my thing. If you're praying for healing and you haven't been healed yet, or you're in financial distress and you haven't had breakthrough yet, or you're in sorrow or, or in a difficult situation and it hasn't resolved itself yet, if you can walk through that bearing the fruit of the Spirit, abiding in Him, you're winning independent of your circumstances. I'm not saying don't stay in faith, don't keep believing for breakthrough or healing or whatever. I'm saying the victory is in Him. You're more than a conqueror. Amen? You're winning just by staying in Him. Circumstances have nothing to do with it. In tribulation, in persecution, in peril, in sword, in famine. More than conquerors. Winning. Amen? So this is the attitude we need to get. So when you go to work and they go, uh, I'm going to, I don't like that you're a Christian. Uh, I really don't like that. I want that Psalm 2 thing off me. I want that law gone. Quit talking about Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say mean things about you and try and get you fired. And you go, all right. I'm winning. <laughs> oh, yeah? How about if I beat you up? All right, it's going to be unpleasant, probably painful. Might have to go to the hospital. But I'm winning. How about if 
is, is happening in the world today in many countries? How about I kill your children? Well, they all believe in Jesus. They're winning. How, how about I put a gun to your head? Well, I better forgive you now because I won't be able to tell you after. Wish you wouldn't, but by the way, I win. Do you understand the attitude? And the winning is in the bearing the fruit. The winning is in the abiding in Him. And we don't have to define how we're doing in God by our circumstances other than, you know, our pursuit of Him. Maybe it does in terms of our righteousness. But we define winning simply by being in Him. We overcome simply by being in Him, by bearing the fruit of His Spirit. Does this make sense? So what he's saying in Romans 8 is nothing can stop us from experiencing his love and being victorious. No matter what they do to you, you can answer them, well, two things. I can still experience the love of Jesus, and I win. I always win. Worst case, you send me to heaven, which is a big win. I can, you can put me in jail. You can put me in solitary confinement. You know what? I'm still going to experience the love of Jesus. I win. You get it? it I warn you, this is infuriating to people who don't know Jesus. But you get it. This is his definition of winning. I want to give you an example of this. Since we're reading from Romans 8, Paul was obviously writing this to the Roman church. Now, the Roman Empire for over 300 years, viciously persecuted the Roman church. There were, uh, you know, they were thrown to uh, lions and animals that tore them up. They were thrown in the Colosseums. They were, uh, Nero put them on uh, poles and dipped them in pitch and set them on fire and used it to light his garden and had one of them parties, right? Yeah. Pretty bad. Christians were persecuted for over 300 years. Let me ask you a question. In Rome today, is there a Roman Empire? Are there Caesars? Are there Christians? Who won? Who endured? Did they ever gain political power and take over? No. You could argue Constantine did, but really they were half Christian by then. They, Rome had been Christianized. Constantine just sort of acknowledged it said, yeah, half of us are Christians anyway. Let's just go with that. They overcame, not through political influence, just being Christians, just not caring, just uh, not loving their life even to the death. They overcame, just like it says in Revelation. So this is going on in the world today. We aren't suffering a whole lot probably, but uh, in Afghanistan right now, they're 99% Muslim. They, they're, they are actively hunting Christians. They don't, they don't want Christians there. There are lots of uh, Afghan Christians who could have gotten out and didn't because they didn't want there to not be a witness in their nation. Isn't that incredible? How many of you are willing to bet? Now, the odds are, if, you know, the book in Las Vegas or whatever, 99% Muslim, a few, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of Christians are there, and they want them gone, the odds are they'll win. How many of you want to bet that there won't be a church there? 
20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. I wouldn't bet against God. He has this way of overcoming. You understand how it works. So I want to end with one last passage. John, I'm sorry, 1 John 5, uh, verses 4 and 5. Same author, the Apostle John. And uh, the band can go ahead and come up. I think we'll have time for at least one more song. He says this about overcoming. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, we know from John 3, born of God means born of the Spirit. Uh, Pardon me. Uh, We must be born again. We must receive the Spirit of God. Pardon me. Who comes into us, who changes us, who sets us apart, who enables us to walk in the Spirit, the dwelling place. And so, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. All we have to do to overcome the world is not compromise our faith. Just keep believing. Our circumstances have nothing to do with it. We just keep believing. We keep bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We keep praying for a change in circumstances. We keep praying for the joy for our sorrow to be turned to joy. But until it is, we're winning. We're winning. Isn't that amazing? Nothing the world can do to keep us from winning because Jesus already won. That is incredible. And that's the understanding he wants us to have going into the things we go through in life because we're going to go through things in life. But we win. Let's stand. Lord, my prayer this morning is that your church could have the right perspective. In the same way, Lord, you were trying to give the apostles a perspective that would carry them through their ministry in the midst of much joy and much sorrow uh, in the future. Lord, I pray for that for your church. Lord, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that we could walk through these times with your perspective, with the fruit of your Spirit. Lord, that we could stand in faith regardless of our circumstances. Lord, that uh, supernatural, miraculous things would increase, but our joy and our peace would increase even more, even if they don't. Lord, we want to walk through the earth as more than conquerors, as people who know they've already won. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making us more than conquerors. Thank you for overcoming the world at the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.